Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. And in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life choices of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. I'd like to thank our sponsor, The Money Nerve, a financial resource that helps you have a healthier relationship with money. Do you feel shame around your past financial decisions? Do you feel alone in your financial struggles? Do you self-sabotage your potential financial successes? Do you keep making the same choices, expecting different results? The Money Nerve has just launched a new online course called The Course to Financial Freedom. To learn more, go to themoneynerve.com forward slash course. The Money Nerve has an offer to all Money You Should Ask listeners for a 25% discount on the course. Use code MYSA, all caps, 25, and start your course to financial freedom now. Thanks again to our sponsor. Well, I'm really pleased today to have with us Andrew Kerr from New Orleans. Um, he is the host of House Hacking Podcast. He is a real estate investor and a successful house hacker, which we're going to find out more about. And he graduated from – oh, okay. He didn't graduate. Okay. Oh, you never, You actually never went. Okay. That never All went, right. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Sore subject. We'll talk about that. So um, – Andrew grew up in um, North Carolina mostly, but now he's down in New Orleans um, where the good stuff is and the land of jazz. And Andrew, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested about this, this piece about you didn't go to college and you had this agreement with your parents that you made a deal that if you, you'd take a year off and if it didn't work, that you'd go to college. So how did, so how did that all come about? It was really all just sort of by accident. You know, in high school, I was the kid that if I liked the class, I got an A in it. If I didn't like the class, I got a D. I did just enough to get by. And I actually wanted to go to culinary school. My parents said, no, we're not going to pay for that. And sort of the way they grew up is, you know, you go to school, you get good grades, you go to college, and then you get a great, you know, career. And my dad spent most of his career at Lenovo until... His division got bought out by Lenovo, and that worked for him, worked for my grandfather, and I was sort of bucking the trend here, and I knew I didn't want to waste their money. They had offered a help for school. I didn't want to take on debt, and that's how I sort of just ended up, and you know that took that sort of 18 to 19 off working, and I stumbled into a job that I just started making really great money at, and then you know by 20, I bought my first house, and all of a sudden, I'm looking around at my friends that are graduating from school with a degree that they can't use and they're working at a sprint store after they just picked up fifty thousand dollars in debt and it just for for me it just didn't quite make sense at that time and did you so uh, you know at 20 that means you know maybe you got out of high school in 18 and 20 years two years later you're buying a house uh you're on commission i think um so were they taking out taxes? Did you have to pay self-employment tax? Were you prepared to pay the tax? Yeah, luckily they were taking out all of the tax for me. So, you know, we'd get our commission checks. You know, I think when I started, I was 19, and I started actually as one of those dreaded telemarketers. You know, that <laughs> I know was them. <laughs> the hourly, and I'd get a bonus. You know, and this is back in 2001, 2002. <clears throat> And I just started – I worked with a small a small shop, and the guy – I started getting so many leads from. And I like the fact that if I got so many leads, I would get a bonus. I was a little money-driven. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I realized, like, man, this is cool. The, the more – the harder I work, the smarter I work, I get another bonus. And then all of a sudden, he goes, Andrew, 
you should try to become a loan officer. You'll make way more money and you're getting more leads than myself and my other person with me can handle. And then that's how I stumbled <laughs> into it was just <clears throat> here I am, you know, 19, 20 years old, making great money. I was getting to, ready to go rent a place. And I was like, wait, I'm doing loans for people and I know what they're paying for a mortgage. And that's the same price or cheaper than what I could rent. Like, so something's not right here. I, I, I should go look at buying a place. And l- luckily, those commission checks, uh, when I started being a loan officer, they withheld all the taxes for it. But yeah, I mean, it blew my mind now thinking back. Because when I was 20, I specific, like vividly, vividly remember when I closed on my house that February, my commission check after taxes was $12,000. Like, it's wow. just an insane amount of money for a 20 year old. And right. I didn't feel like I blew it completely, but like I bought all new furniture. My girlfriend at the time, you know, I was literally like, we'd go out to eat four nights a week. And this is back, right. you know, in early 2000s. You don't go out to eat all the time. And I was like, well, I still have money in my bank. Like, do you want to go out to eat again? Like, and I have another commission check coming next month. So like right. the idea of saving in the future wasn't all quite there. It was just a ridiculous view of money at the time. And how did all that shift for you? Like, did you have an epiphany one day? Did your girlfriend say, man, stop blowing through money? Did your parents make comments? Like, what led you to, I need to do this different? Uh, you know, it was just progression over time when, you know, I had started a business with a, a friend, you know, and it was a huge mistake. We were two great sales guys, and we looked at our check, and we were like, why are they taking 40% of what we're bringing in, and they're sitting there doing nothing? Like, why don't we go out on our own? Right. And, you know, this will make us a, a lot more money. So let's go open our own shop. And partly <laughs> our work ethics were very different. You know, we were great bullshitting together and then right. going, grabbing beers after work or going to see a hockey game uh, on the weekend or something, but not good business partners. So that started to change. You know, as I was starting to get to my mid 20s, I realized, like, hey, is this going to be my life for the next 30, 40 years? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, I love the guy and I hate the guy, but I read this book, which I think a lot of people know about him, Tim Ferriss, Four-Hour Workweek. Yes. And that just sort of blew my mind of like, wait, do I really want to spend 40 years working to spend 10 or 15 years retired? And it right. just – so it was that combination of, you know, getting a little older, getting a little more serious in a relationship, bad choice with a business partner, and that's when it really started to shift for me. What would be a couple of tips or things that you learned about what you would or wouldn't do going into a partnership in the future? Because I have a lot of conversations about partnerships with clients um, because you got to be careful about picking the right partner. Absolutely. You know, some of the general rules of thumb I always think are like, you know, uh, a good friend doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good business partner. Same thing with family. Just because your family doesn't mean you're going to do well as a business partner. And a lot of times, because you don't have that separation, you end up having work stresses carry home to the the friendship and the family life. So I would always say, you know, really think about that. And then think about complementary skill set. So maybe you're really good at accounting, but I'm not. But I'm awesome at sales. So great, I'll take care of sales and marketing. You take care of the operations and the, the finance. So find skills where you can complement each other and business partners. And then the one thing that we didn't do very well that I really recommend to a lot of folks and I've done in other partnerships since then is document everything really well. 
mm-hmm. make clear expectations, and then have that in writing. So that way, if an issue does come up, you know, you've got some footing to stand on. Um, you know, luckily, I was able to just walk away from that partnership. You know, it, when it started to get bad, he wanted to go one way and really grow and expand. I didn't. Our work ethics weren't lining up anymore. I walked away with essentially nothing. He kept with the business. You know, I was fortunate where I walked away with nothing. And the reason being is, you know, I think it was about 15, 16 months later, he filed bankruptcy specifically ah. because that was going into 2007, 2008. And everyone oh, wow. knows what, what happened. I, I wish I could say it was this beautiful, like, foresight that I had, but I just was able to get away at a lucky, lucky time. So before. you had a lot of lucky breaks. Yeah, very, very lucky break. Yeah. I mean, I also think with uh, lucky breaks, there's a lot of hard work that comes when you get lucky. And I think sometimes the universe universe rewards rewards those that work hard with a little bit of extra uh, looking out for us. Absolutely. Um, so going, I want to jump back to the college thing. Uh, you didn't go to college because you were really looking at that. I don't want to look at, I don't want to be looking at this debt. I don't want to be working at you know, Starbucks or Barnes and Noble and, and looking at this fifty hundred thousand dollars debt. Uh, did you have any real concerns that people would make judgments about your education? Um, do you find that most people don't even ask you uh, about that anyway? Because if they have a sense, you know how to do business like what has yeah. been the impact of that decision and how like how does how do you? Yeah, really great question. So part of it was just being young and dumb. You know, you feel you're invincible and nothing can stop you. So there I was, you know, like 20 years old, 21. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm making good money. I don't need the degree. You know, my mother being a good mother was like, oh, this is going to be a challenge for you when you go to interview. You know, this is something that's always going to come up. And while it did come up in my early 20s, luckily when I was in sort of that mortgage banking and in sales, your numbers really drove the conversation. So right. the fact that they could look at your track record made it easier in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, especially at that time, I didn't have the degree. I was also like 22, but looked 16. So that right. was even more of a challenge. So I definitely noticed it there. It was something that even still came came up. Uh, you know, when I took a job, uh, this is probably about six, seven years ago. You know, the hiring manager basically said, it doesn't bother me, but my boss, when she sits down to talk with you, this is going to be a hot button uh, issue for her. And they were recruiting me to come in. And then, you know, the most recent job that I took, you know, they highly recruited me to come on board, didn't even come up at once. So I I think it's sort of evolved over time. You know, they're still in the early 2000s. College was really important. And then in the past two years, there's really been a big shift. And, you know, folks like Amazon, Google, and Facebook, when they started coming out saying, you know, now having a four-year degree isn't a requirement, um, I think that started to make it more, you know, widespread. But it still would come up every now and then. Um, Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. And did you have siblings I did. I was the oldest, and then was my sister, and then my brother was the youngest. So it was sort of cool the way it worked out. When I was a senior in high school, my sister was a freshman. When she was a senior in high school, my brother was a freshman. So we had this nice age gap, but it wasn't too too far apart. 
And I was the one that was always causing my parents, you know, the gray hair. So I think my, my siblings sort of learned of like, oh, Andrew's <laughs> taking all the heat. He's going to make life easy for us. No, that's probably true. And probably, to be fair, your parents were getting to practice on you uh, first-time tryouts, whereas with the the second and third kid, they've already, oh, yeah, don't do that. Look what yeah. happened to Andrew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so stay clear of that. Um, well, do this you is- remember? No, I was just saying, there's this really, really interesting point, you know, even with sort of the college and, and the kids, you know, my sister went to the four year college. They were super proud of her. And it wasn't until at, at one point sort of for, further in my career, you know, my mom was always still, you know, Andrew, have you been thinking about school? Have you been thinking about school? Being a very good mother, a little bit nagging, but being a good mother. Yeah. And I was building up a real estate portfolio at this. And one of her really good friends was a realtor that I was using. And literally, like, my mom changed overnight. She had a conversation with her realtor friend, and the realtor just was turned to her and was like, Terry, you know your son owns more real estate than, like, 90% of the people in America. And all of a sudden, it just, like, snapped. She was like, oh, I have something to be proud about. Like, yeah, he doesn't have an degree, but, you know, he's a successful he's real estate this. investor. Yeah, so it's just it was literally almost this night and day thing of, like, Oh, you know, Andrew, could, could you buy a vacation property down in St. John? We love going to St. John. You know, it's sort of just like fun thing all, all of a sudden that changed uh, from, from her point of view. So, Well, you know, it's interesting that you brought this up and we all love our parents. So I'm not, uh, you know, dogging our parents. But I, there is this thing about something to be proud of. Right. Mm-hmm. There is this thing I know from my parents. We need to be proud of you. You need to be a nice reflection on us. We want and and how much do you think that plays played a role in your growing up um, of with the best of intentions, but wanting something to be proud of and right. You know, the, yeah. the tangible, not just you're a good person. You have a kind heart. Uh, you you know you take care of animals, but you've got something to be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that played in 100%. I, I was really fortunate. Grew up in a very middle-class life, both my parents, loving relationship. You know, I don't ever even remember them fighting. My mom said they, they would fight like a normal couple did all the time. You know, I don't even really remember that. But part of it was just a generational thing. You know, I'm now 38. I'm at that sort of sort of a millennial right at that edge but you know when they grew up you know my grandfather worked his way all the way up at gm and had a degree you know my dad as soon as he got out of high school went to michigan state got a great degree in engineering that sort of worked for them but then all of a sudden in the 90s as sort of tech started coming around and then the early 2000s the world really, really changed, and, and I think that changed a lot of people's perspectives. But, you know, with my parents, that's very much what it was. It's here's what worked for us, and this is going to work for you. And the world, right. while it was very different from the 90s to the 70s or even the 60s, in some ways it hadn't changed a, a whole lot. It's, you know, you get good grades in school so you can go to a good college. Then you can go work for a good company, and then you stay with that company for your whole career, and then they take care of you. And a lot of folks really know what happened with companies is they started doing away with those pensions, retirement yeah. plans, shifting to 401ks, downsizing very randomly. And, and so some of that sort of changed their perspective as well. And you know, I grew up in that where stuff was rapidly shifting. So to me, it didn't make sense of 
going and working at a career for 30 or 40 years that you didn't like anymore. Yeah, it's it's amazing to me. I feel very fortunate that I love what I do. Um, and I know people that hate what they do and they go and do it every day for a number of years. That's incredibly depressing to me. Uh, I could not get up. And in fact, I had a job. I would get up um, towards the end. And as I'm driving over the hill, it was in the valley, I'd be crying. Oh, man. Because I, and I'm like, I don't want to go, you know. And, and then I'd get to work and I'd, and I'd get through the day. And after about three weeks, I just said, well, I don't have a plan other than I'm not driving to this place anymore. Yeah. And I quit. And, you know, they were shocked. Well, what do you, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was so miserable. And I know a lot of people will suppress that misery and get the paycheck. It took me a while to recover from that choice. Yeah. Uh, and I don't regret it at all. Yeah, I, I give a lot of credit to my dad. I know he didn't always love his job. Sometimes he did, and he moved up uh, th- through the ranks. He never made it to s- uh, sort of the C-suite level, but was sort of that upper-level management. And I definitely know there's weeks and months and years when he rather would have just quit. But it was, here's what I need to do to take care of my family, so I'm going to grind it through. So I definitely give him a lot of credit for that. But it, I could never do it, you know. Yeah. I, I always find myself like, you know, that's why me me and my one buddy, part, part of why we went out and started a company was, you know, one, there's they were taking a ton of our commission check, but all of a sudden it was like, wait, he's asking us, the top producers, for a pipeline report? Please. We're making him so much money. Right. Like, all right, fine. I'm pissed off. I'm going to go start my own company. Like, right. that, that flexibility just wasn't necessarily there in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. No, absolutely. When you were growing up, what were the messages around money that you received? And were they the same from both parents? Generally, yeah. And I mean, part of it was we didn't really have a lot of money. You know, my dad was raised in the Catholic Church. We were raised in the Catholic Church. You know, we were essentially required to go up till 16. And part of what we always taught, even when we started to get our allow- a little allowances, you tithe, you give back, you got to give something. Um, so that was really the biggest money message that we sort of learned growing up. And, you know, I, I didn't really have a concept of the money. We lived in a nice house. The only time I ever went hungry was when we were being bratty and we didn't want to eat what mom cooked or dad cooked. Right. Um, and, you know, my dad was somewhat frugal. We'd ask sometimes of like, well, why are you changing, you know, the, the oil on your truck yourself? And he's like, well, you know, it's cheaper. You got to learn how to take care of your stuff. That was really the big thing we learned is you take care of your stuff so it lasts, not necessarily of how to do a budget or how to save for retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember when I got my first part-time job at 15, my dad took me down to the credit union and helped me open up a IRA, you know, individual retirement account. And back then you couldn't choose really to invest in stocks. It was great. You give them this, they give you a guaranteed 4% rate of return you know, per year while the money's invested with them. There's really no choices. You couldn't right. take your money a lot of other places. And, you know, th- those were the basic things that I really learned of tithe, take care of stuff so it'll last. And then the early concepts of, of sort of saving for retirement. But, you know, at 15, 16, it doesn't make sense. All it was is dad's making me take money out of my check that I want to go blow on video games and, right. you know, going out with friends. How much do you still tithe, and um, do you personally 
if you do tithe, do you do it because that's what your parents told you, or do you see a value in tithing or charity? A hundred percent. So we we hadn't quite touched on this yet, but you know, back in two thousand eight, when the sort of world was falling apart uh, financially. I was sort of making this change in my career and ended up in the nonprofit sector. Um, along the same time period, I had joined a Rotary Club. A lot of folks are familiar with the Rotary Club from maybe their grandfather was in it. You know, yep. I joined for networking, but they sort of instilled in, you know, you got to volunteer locally. We got to volunteer internationally, do service projects. So that started to instill some stuff in me, and I realized how – you know, I, I remember the first time I, I went to Haiti. You know, I'd been abroad a bit in like Europe and Italy, you know, to the Caribbean, but it was always the tourist areas. Right. And I, I spent some time in Haiti and I came back and <clears throat> my buddy in Miami picked me up and we went through the drive through. And, you know, having been on rice and beans for a month, I was like, oh, give me the burger, give me the fries, give me the chicken nuggets, give me the milkshake, give me right. the Coke, the Dr. Pepper. And it was like 20 bucks and it was nothing. Then all of a sudden I was like, man, I just spent on one meal what they were living off of for a whole month. Like, right. So that just really started to instill in me. So, um, you know, we give every month. Um, there's a couple big charities I'd love to support. We give monthly reoccurring. And then as time goes throughout the year, when we sell a property or we end up with a little extra cash, we like to, to give to a charity of our choice. And then one of my sort of personal missions is to raise $25 million for charity. So I've raised about $17, $18 million, give or take. I got to update my numbers here in 2020. But, you know, I realized when I started doing some nonprofit work back in 2008 was I could go out and clean out these flooded homes. I could swing a hammer, but anyone could come behind me and sort of do that job. I was really good at from being 100% percent commission relationship building the sales side of it so i said you know my time is more valuable going out and fundraising which a lot of people didn't like to do um, and i can make a bigger impact charity that way so i'm i'm slowly moving towards that goal of raising 25 million dollars for charity and then we we do give every year and you know as accountant i know you're familiar with donor advice fund so we were were looking at setting up one here in the spring uh, when we sold a property we had been working on but with covid happening uh, I think we're going to wait till, till next year if we end up selling that property, and then we'll set up a donor advised fund. That way, we can sort of think about more generational uh, charity and giving, and try to get our nieces and nephews um, sort of clued in on charitable giving as well. I love that. Uh, I'm a big believer in paying it forward and volunteerism and community service and and donating. What are the benefits that you personally have received um, in doing charity work, in doing nonprofit, in volunteering, in raising that money? I mean, it's it's very selfish in some ways where like you almost feel like you get at more out of it. I mean, you know, I, I write about this on my blog. There's a little section on there where, you know, I went from making a six figure income in mortgage banking to, you know, my starting salary was actually a stipend in the nonprofit sector was $800 a month. I made tons of great money, but hated life. And then all of a sudden I was making no money, but I loved life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's that side of it. You definitely feel good about having a purpose, about giving back. It completely opened up my worldview. 
uh, also, you know, so the charity work that I started doing was a disaster response work. Mm-hmm. You know, it had taken me all around the world. You know, now me and my wife, I've been to about 34, 35 countries. She's been to over 40 countries. Nice. It really changed our, our worldview. You know, we've got friends all around the world. You know, sort of a fun, crazy story. I was doing aid work in Indonesia. I met a woman from Italy. And she went to uh, boarding school for high school in Canada, got her degree at the London School of uh, Behavioral Science and um, Health Sciences. And she was doing aid work in Indonesia. I got deployed to Haiti. She got deployed to Haiti. Different organizations and our field bases were right next to each other. We became fast friends. My wife and I went to her wedding two years ago in Italy. We were supposed to go see them this fall in Switzerland where she's living now with her husband. And that's just like one of these amazing things where like, to me, it's given so much. It makes me feel better about life. Um, It's built friendships. It's changed my worldview. It's also the biggest thing is made me more grateful for for what I have and what, what I'm at. You know, in my early 20s, I was definitely way more materialistic. Like, I got to fly private, you know, that that's what I want to work towards is being uber multimillionaire so I can have a private jet. And then I was like, you know, I actually really don't need that. Like flying business class is good enough for me. You know, <laughs> let, let, let's do that. And like, do I really need the fancy car? Yes, it'd be nice. But like in New Orleans now, I have a little Fiat that I've had for years. And it's like, I don't have a garage. I don't even pre-COVID, you know, I would maybe drive 20 miles a, a, a month because like we could walk everywhere or take a quick uber out so it's things like that just so that helped shift my perspective on what do i actually value in life and to me it's more of those experiences and time with family and friends so uh, to me that charity giving back is really just changed my overall perspective on a lot of things you touched on something that feels uh important for me anyway i i've traveled a lot and i agree it changes it can change one's worldview. Uh, I certainly have gone to a lot of developing countries, and uh, the word that you talked about, which is was for me the same thing, it was transformational, is uh, coming from a place of gratitude. Yeah. Like, I think, yes, being a, a somewhat entitled and having a, you know, in the U.S., we have it really, really good. We don't, maybe we don't think so. We have... We have it really, really good. We can go into grocery stores and have, you know, cell phones. And uh, but there's something in seeing how other people live that, for me, gave me such. It was very humbling, and it really shifted my just my whole mindset about gratitude. Um, so, can you just say a little bit more about that for you? How it changed your worldview and. <clears throat> What would you say about traveling if people should do it or not do it? Absolutely. So fu- funny story, you mentioned with the grocery store. You know, back uh, when I had joined a, a Rotary Club early on, we had an exchange student come over. And he was from, I think he was from Pakistan in a more rural area. And one of the guys in my Rotary Club took him to the grocery store to just buy a couple of essentials. And the guy just stopped and was just looking around and like didn't know what to do and the part that he got stuck on was the butter section and to us like you know what type of butter you want you walk in but to him it was like 
<laughs> butter's butter. And it's like in our grocery store, it's like we got butter. We got butter with canola oil. We got whipped. We've got salted. We got unsalted. We got margarines. And like, you know, there's 50 different varieties. It was just so overwhelming from them. Yeah. And, and to me, that's what traveling internationally has done is changed that perspective of like everyone's going to have a bad day from time to time. But when you sort of put things in that perspective of like, man, you know, my, my day isn't really that bad. Um, you know, our welfare system, our social safety nets are so much better than around the world. Um, you know, when we did work in Haiti, one of the things that would drive us crazy is, you know, besides the whole island time thing when no one's ever on time, but in every meeting, everyone would always answer their phone in the middle of the meeting, no matter what. And one time we just asked, we like, well, why do you always interrupt it? You know, in our country, it'd be very rude if you're in an important business meeting and all of a sudden you just answer the phone. And he goes, well, you're America. You have 911. We don't have 911. So if someone calls, it could actually be an emergency. And if it's my wife, my children in an emergency, I need to answer and then leave right away. And to me, that was just one of those other huge perspectives of when you learn how other people live around the world and it makes you so much more grateful. And then the other piece there, too, is what people can how they can live their life so much simpler and be so much happier than us with all of our junk that we have. Um, so th- those are the couple of pieces. The other thing is, you know, even if traveling internationally isn't your thing, you got to get out of your own state, you know, travel to a different state. I mean, we're in such an amazing country that, that's so diverse geographically, mountains, beaches, um, you know, cornfields. It's, it's an amazing thing. And I think the more you travel, it helps open up your, your viewpoint when you can understand how different people live, even in the U.S. or uh, around the world, it just gives you a different perspective. Um, I'm really big on traveling internationally simply because, you know, our country is only 300 years old. And while, yeah. while there is some history here, I mean, it's completely different than, you know, walking through Rome and seeing something that's 500, 1,000 years old. Or, yeah. you know, uh, last year we did a huge Middle East trip, you know, seeing the pyramids that have been there for you know, centuries upon centuries. It just, yeah. to me, it just uh, makes you think a little bit differently. Even if you go abroad and you're like, nope, not for me, it all of a sudden makes you say like, you know, it's pretty nice having that McDonald's right down the road for me or the Starbucks it, that I can go through the drive through or, you know, Uber Eats on my phone and I, I have all these these choices. So, yeah, me, uh, me and my wife, we actually have this goal of trying to join the Traveler Century Club. So you actually have to travel to and stay in 100 countries before you can join. So every year we try to go to another two, three, four, four countries. Oh, that's cool. That's a yeah. good goal. Yeah. I, I love traveling. I love traveling. Uh, how much do you and your wife talk about money? Um, more and more now. So, you know, part of it was we had dated for several years uh, before we got married. We got married. Um, September will be, be two years. And okay. even before that, we were getting quite serious it wasn't me. So if any women are listening and you think you're blaming me, she was actually the ones like, no, nope, I just want to be together. We don't have to get married. So it wasn't me waiting off on okay, proposing. Okay, see, I was going to say to you, wow, she's a very patient woman. Uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You know, it's her fault. <laughs> but we, even before we had gotten married, you know, we were like, great, we're going to be together. We had put a uh, estate plans in place. I did a health care directive. Uh, that way, if something happened to me, you know, she could be there and actually 
be, be in the room with me if I was unconscious. Um, you know, I wrote that sort of in conjunction with my parents and feedback and saying, look, yes, while we're technically not married, like she's a big part of my life. Um, right. You know, I put a life insurance uh, plan in place for her, stuff that you normally do once you get married. So we started talking a little bit about then. And then once we really started um, new and she sort of changed her mind at one point and said, look, you know, and this is when we got to New Orleans. Okay, I definitely want to get married. Let's start thinking about that. Not a huge rush. I don't want a big wedding. Let's start to think about these pieces. That really started driving the conversation for us. And, and the two big things that really drove it forward, one, was a wedding. And then two was um, buying property together. So on that wedding piece, she didn't want a big wedding. And you know she realized like the average cost of a wedding was like $25,000, $30,000. She was just blown away by that and she's like that is so crazy like for 30 grand we can go travel around the world for six months or like we can go live in asia for for a year and have an awesome condo have a cleaner that comes every day you know just live an amazing life so that sort of really started getting us talking about money and then real estate was always my thing and she sort of understood it but she liked the fact that i was ambitious and I proposed this idea to her of like, why don't we do a house hack together? Because if we can do a house hack and we have zero housing costs, think how much money that would free up. Um, and when we moved to New Orleans, we were renting a place. It was costing us fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month. So I proposed to her of like, if we can do a house hack and buy this property together, you take some of your savings, I take some of mine, then you know, fifteen hundred bucks a month, twenty grand a year. That's some pretty cool international trips. So that really dawned on her. But then as we started going through renovations, we started looking at picking out tile. Like I would automatically walk to the $2 a foot tile section. She'd walk around to see what looked nice. And she's like, oh, I love this one. And I was like, you know, that's $20 a square foot. So that started having more money conversations for us. And then when we started managing the property together, that sort of like, oh, we've got this budget. And that really... You know, we're still not perfect by any means, but that sort of helped us have more money conversations of, hey, we're managing this joint project together. We've got to put money aside for maintenance. We've got to start thinking about the future. You know, she had an idea what a savings goal was. I had one. And then when we started talking through that, so that that's sort of how things started to, to develop for, for then. Okay. Um, now, I know we're going to have you as a guest on the Money Nerve podcast, and you're going to talk about... Um, house hacking, but can you just give a short uh, description for people that don't know what house hacking is? Yeah. The the basic concept is it's sort of a real estate investing niche. So the idea is you just make a slightly different choice with your housing and you do that to help offset or eliminate some or all of your housing costs. You know, so most folks in the U.S. spend on average 30 to 40 percent of their income on housing. So the idea with house hacking is let me buy a property that has some sort of income potential. So whether it's like a duplex and you rent out one side and it helps offset part of your mortgage or you're just out of college and you've been living with friends, you go buy a big five-bedroom house, rent out the other four bedrooms to your friends, and all of a sudden they're covering your whole mortgage and you're pocketing a little bit of money. So that's just the basic idea is you make a slightly different choice to buy a house that can have some income potential 
to sort of close that gap. Instead of spending 30 or 40 percent of your housing or your budget on housing, you're cutting it to 20, 10 percent, or in some really good cases, zero percent of, of your income on housing. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I have a lot of entertainment clients, and so when people, when actors get ready to buy their first house, they're like, I want to buy a house. And I always say, you should consider a duplex or a triplex so when your TV show gets canceled, if yeah. it does, heaven forbid, you've got other people paying your mortgage. Because the couple clients that I had that went out and bought a house and then lost the series end up selling their house. Yeah. And a lot of my clients have started out with a duplex or a triplex. And even though initially they were, Bob, I don't want to do this. They've come back and said, oh, my God, it helped me step up to the next house or it helped me step up. Um, and, and that's what I presented to my wife when we did that house hack. I said, you know, this helps us get in a better position to buy the next one, which helps us get a step closer to your dream house. Or if we right. want to go live abroad for a year or two, they're producing cash flow that covers our housing when we're abroad. But, yeah, that's brilliant that, that you take your entertainment clients on that because yeah they could be making killer money and then that series gets canceled or maybe they get a new job but it's for only six months in another part of the country so now you got to rent your house short term or if you have that duplex you can afford to just leave it as is because you're offsetting some of that that cost exactly exactly all right what do you love to spend money on and you don't actually feel guilty about and you just spend it oh yeah I so I, again generally frugal, but I love good dress shoes. So you know okay. this is you know Tim, Tim Ferriss. You know, uh, t- damn him, right? So there's so many things he changed my perspective on. There's this really great quote that he had is like, "You spend most of your life on your feet or in your bed. So spend a good money on on a mattress and spend good money on shoes." And so that I, I use as this rationale, but I love good real Italian dress shoes. You know, okay. the, the good part is, you know, like my wife, she doesn't think it's that crazy, but some of my friends are like, you just spent $400 on a pair of dress shoes. I was like, yes, but you know, the, the other pair that I bought seven years ago, they still look brand new. You can get them resold and refurbished. So that's one of the things I'll, I'll blow money on um, n- a nice pair of dress shoes. That's awesome. I'm incredibly frugal. Uh, my friends would say cheap, but uh, <laughs> I like frugal. Sounds yeah. better. Um, what do you not want to spend money on? What? Uh, do you and besides taxes? Because <laughs> yeah, ta- taxes. I, I think that that one upsets everyone. I think it does. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, lately it's really just shifted. You know, part of COVID is is I think for a lot of folks it's shifted their perspective on a, on a lot of things. The the thing that I hate is takeout food from your average restaurant. So like, I'll end up ordering Uber Eats, and I'm like, you know, that was an average meal at best. We could have made something just as as good. So that's something that I always like. It seems great. It's like, oh, we're in a hurry or like we're busy. You know, we hadn't gone to the grocery store yet. Let's just order some some Uber Eats um, it, or DoorDash. And then afterwards, like, man, that was a waste of like 40 bucks after you add in the delivery fee and the tip and the food that was mediocre at best. Um, and don't get me wrong, like. When we travel, we always pick out a Michelin star restaurant to go to. But to us, that is more of an experience, a dining experience, a tasting experience versus the just, I need substance. Let me go spend money on takeout. So that's something that we still do. And then afterwards, always just drives us crazy. Like, did we really just spend a hundred bucks this week on Uber Eats? That was a waste. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, what? 
I, I'm going to ask you this one final question. What advice would you give to a younger version of yourself? If you could go back and talk to the 18-year-old you about life, about finances, what would you tell him? Yeah, two, I would say two things. One is max out those retirement accounts early. I didn't really do that. You know, I had mentioned my dad helped me set up that IRA at 15. I think I ended up cashing it out at one point and started another and cashed one out and started another. So, you know, even if I would have just put away, you know, 5% of what I was making, I was blowing it all so I wouldn't have missed it. It would have made a huge right. impact to, to my net worth. Um, yep. And then the other thing is, you know, I bought that first property and did a house hack and rented out the rooms, but I didn't grasp that concept. I really wish I would have bought a, another property a lot sooner. You know, if I would have picked up two or three extra properties there, you know, in those early 2000s could have made a huge difference um, f- financially. So diversify um, and, you know, max out those tax deferred retirement accounts is really what I would yeah. say to my 18 year old self. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would agree. Um, so I know we're, we're coming to the end here, and I just want to reflect back what I've really been hearing. Um, what I'm taking away is that, uh, you know, do what you love. Yeah. Like really actually check in. Um, you didn't go to school because it was like the thing to do. You checked in and said, I don't want the debt. I'm not sure I'm going to like it. And And it sounded like, and it sounds like you're open and flexible to reevaluate things rather than just say, this is the way it is and I'm going to do this for the next 30 years. But some openness to to, to, to actually readjust. And uh, I, I love this piece about traveling because I do think it teaches us to uh, – um, it taught me to be a lot more humble and a lot more grateful. Yeah. And uh, I do think it opens our eyes. And I do, and I really hear this place about charity that it's almost a little selfish because you do get more um, from it when you give. And I, I tend to agree with that. I, I do feel like it's an important component of being human is to pay it forward. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's just it's really cool to hear that you have a goal that you're close to getting of raising twenty five million dollars um, for charity. I think that's brilliant and awesome. And um, I hope you get there sooner than later. Yeah. And um, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, so two Instagram or sort of Facebook social media handles are the House Hacking Podcast is my podcast that I put on to help folks that want to learn about that real estate investing uh, niche. And then uh, all my other handles are uh, FIBYREA, F-I-B-Y-R-E-I, sort of talking about getting to some level of financial independence through you know, real estate investing. Well, people should look you up. That's Andrew Kerr, K-E-R-R, and look up house hacking so that you can learn how to get ahead if that's been something you want to do. And I'm sure you have some tips in there for people that maybe they don't have 30% to put down on a rental or maybe – there are other ways to get creative if you don't have uh, necessarily the 20 or 30% down. I know there are opportunities if you look, um, but uh, I think people should check that out. And uh, it's been, it works, it's worked for you. And I'd love for people to check that out. Uh, let me shout out to FinCon because we, we did meet through, uh, connected through FinCon. I love FinCon. Um, it's a great organization that connects folks with other folks that want to talk and share and educate and learn about 
finances and debt and everything in between and house hacking. And uh, so I, I appreciate that FinCon creates that that space for all of us to come together and support each other and learn from each other. And so I appreciate you uh, bringing your gifts and your experiences out there for people to learn about. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, I also want to say don't forget to share the love. Uh, for those of you listening to Money You Should Ask podcast, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money You Should Ask, all one word. And you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. And uh, Andrew, it has been awesome having you, and I appreciate you taking the time. And wish you, I wish you much, much uh, more success and gratitude and abundance. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It was, it was great chatting with you. Thank you. <laughs>